You're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Do you want to speak with confidence and authority, have more influence, and get bigger and better results? Whether you're a top executive, an entrepreneur, or climbing the career ladder, this is the show for you. A leader who wants to inspire others and leave a lasting legacy. Now here's your host, world-renowned TEDx speaker, author, and executive communication coach, Dr. Laura Sokola. Welcome to the podcast, Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, your host, founder of Vocal Impact Productions and author of Speaking to Influence, Mastering Your Leadership Voice. My guest today is none other than transformation expert, regular Harvard Business Review and Forbes contributor, owner and managing partner of Navalent, an organizational consulting firm, and author of the new book, To Be Honest, Lead with the Power of Truth, Justice, and Purpose, Ron Carucci. Ron, thank you so much for joining me today. Laura, pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, to everybody else out there, you know that generally speaking, my guests on Speaking to Influence are executives of larger companies or organizations. I don't typically interview consultants and individual experts per se, but today I'm making an exception because I have been following Ron's work for years, in particular in the HBR. And you know, his work, your work, Ron, is in organizational dynamics, leadership change management, transformation, minds and leadership communication, executive presence and influence. It's like chocolate and peanut butter. There is no better combination. So when I saw the opportunity to have you here on the show and especially to talk about your new book, I just couldn't pass it up. So thanks so much for joining me today. Well, Laura, it's a pleasure. I appreciate that. We're all getting back into networking season, hopefully more live than virtual. So we got to reflex that muscle about the elevator pitch. So can you give us Navalent's 30-second elevator pitch? If you're an executive or aspiring executive and you've been tasked to lead some really important change for your organization, a remit of a new strategy, integrating a merger, launching a new product, or just changing yourself, and you need a trusted advisor to accompany you on that journey, call us. Love it. Thank you so much. All right, everybody, got your model out there. Go back, hit rewind, play it again. Take down some notes. You got ideas for your own elevator pitch moving forward. Now, in your brand new book, To Be Honest, that's the title of the book. I'm not prefacing what I'm about to say. <laughs> to Be Honest, Lead with the Power of Truth, Justice, and Purpose. This book looks at the relationship among four key factors, right? Clear identity, accountability, governance, and cross-functional relationships, right? Yep. Okay. So now for me, as the expression says, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So I'm in communication, but it seems to me that communication is really at the core of all four of these areas. Is that true or false? I would say it's partially true. Okay. I think at the end of the day, we are the vehicle of our messages, right? But what we learned in the research, Laura, is that today, the standard of being honest isn't just about not lying. Okay. Our experience of honesty in, in leadership you know, all over the place has gone into such a free fall that the expectations of people have gone higher. Mm. So today, it's no longer enough just to say the right thing. Okay. You have to say the right thing, do the right thing, and say and do the right thing for the right reason, even when it's hard. And for many people, and you, I mean, you're the expert in this, we all know that our intentions and our impact often don't match. Right. And we're the last one to know. And you can be experienced as dishonest when you have no intention of being mad at all. And it sounds like, especially that notion of when your intentions and your impact don't gel, I feel like that's the, the refrain that I'm hearing more and more in regard to race relations and into the diversity issues and conversations in companies, organizations, communities, and elsewhere. Is that part of what you're finding in the research, that this is one of the hottest issues or most sensitive areas? Absolutely. That's justice, right? So organizations that are, what we know is that when 
organization's accountability systems are seen to be unfair, meaning the way I'm looked at or my work is looked at is inequitable, you're now four times more likely to have people lie, cheat, and serve their own interests first. Mm. If you're seen as equitable, if in other words, the playing field's level and everybody has the equal chance of success, and I'm treated with dignity, my performance is treated with dignity. Now you're four times more likely to have people tell the truth, behave fairly, and serve a greater good. Mm. But to your point about communication, that's in the eye of the beholder. I may not be intending as a boss to treat you in an undignified way. One of the problems we have is that we've confused uh, sameness as fairness. Mm. You know, it's, we should treat people the same because that way it's more fair. But the reality is that's actually the most unfair way to treat people. You know, in a knowledge economy, my remit to you is my idea, my analysis, my creativity, my radical thinking, uh, my vulnerability. It's no longer my 100 t-shirts or my 1,000 widgets or my 500 of this. Today, the contributor and the contribution are more fused than ever. Mm. So a boss can't decide, well, it's not personal. I'm just talking about your work. That isn't how it works anymore. So when I talk about your work, I am talking about you. When I evaluate your work, I am evaluating you. Mm. And if I don't do that with dignity, by default, I'm undignifying you. It's offensive, right? I ask my audiences all the time, how many of you have ever gotten a compliment from your boss that was actually insulting? Mm. Half the answer is why? Because he was trying to insult you? No, he wasn't or she wasn't. But you felt unseen, unknown, and not sure it was genuine. What would one sound like? Can you give an example of a couple of those compliments that were genuinely intended as compliments, but were otherwise interpreted as insults? Where's the mismatch? Hey, Laura, way to go on that report this morning. You did a great job in the presentation. And I know you have no idea what it took. I know you have no idea how many nights I stood up. And part of the reason I had to do it was because you were late asking for it. Okay. Right? So it was just sort of an obligatory high five after the fact. Got it. So it's not that it was condescending or not, but it was just perfunctory and superficial and there was no meat behind it, just an attaboy. It was just that you check in a box. Got it. And so if I know that you understand, you know, what your compliment means, if I believe you understand what you're complimenting in the first place, then it matters to me. Got it. But how would I as a boss know that? Do I as a boss believe letting you know that your work matters is important? Of course I do. Do I think I do that far more than I actually do? Of course I do. So simple tool. One of the greatest ways to show dignity to somebody in their work is ask for the story. Mm. You know, when someone brings you a, a remit, when somebody brings you hands in the project when it's due or hands in something, just say to them, you know, I'm sure I have no idea what it took for you to accomplish that, but I'd love to hear the story. How'd you do it? Mm. And just listen to the story. And you will get gold in that story. You'll hear what motivates them, where they struggled, what they learned, where they broke through. And they're giving you a compass for how to create the conditions under which they do their best work going forward. It's a goal. It sounds like that's a great example of a blind spot. And we all have blind spots in communication. And it's certainly something that I, I focus on in my book, Speaking to Influence. So what's another example of a blind spot where people, leaders in particular, they think they're good communicators. They're trying really hard. Everybody thinks they're a good communicator, right? It's always the listener who's at fault. But the uh, so where's another example of a blind spot where leaders think they're communicating clearly and sufficiently, quantity, quality, but they're just blind to the fact that they're missing the mark? Decision-making. Okay. So many leaders intend to be empowering. So they know that they've been taught their job is to include people in decision, decisions that are important to them. So they go into a room with their team and ask, so this is what we're thinking about. What do you all think? But everybody in the room knows he's already made up his mind, mm. right? So this is now orchestrated theater okay. where the goal is to make it look like you're being included. Right. So it's just a dog and pony show at that point. It's not sure. actually a sincere request for input. Well, can we say it really is a ruse? I believe if you were actually to examine the brain science, the brain neuropathways of that leader's 
brain in that moment, you would see that he or she actually did want to make those people feel included. Mm-hmm. But they also wanted them to get their way. I wonder if it's about confirmation bias or hoping that the input that you're going to get is going to confirm what you already wanted to happen anyway. Well, uh, that's part of it, Laura, or at least to that, right? Right. Because what, what I've trained my team to do is try and read my mind right. and tell me what I want to hear, right? I've not invited open, engaging dissent. I've not demonstrated having my mind changed. They don't believe I'm actually open to their voice. And so what I've done is I've muted them. In the intent or in the presented guise of inviting your voice, I actually muted it. Okay. So it's a little too perfunctory at that point. Well, how do I know it's safe? How do I know you really want to hear what I have to think? What if I think your idea is stupid? In fact, what if your idea actually is stupid? (laughs) Well, what is it? What about that? What if somebody's idea that they come up with is kind of stupid? What happens then? Well, especially if it's your boss, right? You know, you don't want to sit there and sneer or do the whole eye rolling thing, you know, or just be quiet. But you might ask a question. Can you help us understand how you got to this conclusion? What data did you use? What data did you use? What you seem very passionate about it. That's interesting. How'd you get here? Walk us back. Yeah. Yeah. Where do you see concerns? Do you have any misgivings about the idea at all? And you, you hit a word that really made my ears perk up there. The notion of safety. In this whole notion of justice and equity and inclusion, all the pieces that are just becoming more and more sensitive nowadays, people are afraid on whatever side of the fence, if there were, as if there were only two, but uh, you know, whatever angle they're coming at the conversation from with the notion of, can I speak up? Can I ask a question? Can I do whatever? Because whether I voice dissent or whether I ask a question in willingness to, quote unquote, step into the discomfort Will I put my foot in my mouth or will I voluntarily show my ignorance and looking for information, but then end up having it follow me forever? Will it get me labeled? Am I safe? Who is or isn't safe? How do you make, as a leader, how do you make the space safe? Well, start with your own vulnerability. Start by saying, look, guys, I'm not good at this either. You know, I represent this demographic and there's a lot of you. I know there's not a lot of this demographic in here. And some of you are that. Or I know that conflict feels uncomfortable for many. You worry that you might say something that upsets me or lose my respect or put your career at risk. I get that. So I like to hear from you. What do I need to do? How have I demonstrated or how could I demonstrate to you that I really do care about your voice and want to hear it? And what what am I doing that I don't know about that maybe inadvertently silencing you? Mm. you Just by virtue of the fact that in meetings, there's someone who everybody knows dominates the conversation. Yes. And I let them. I don't ever cut them off. To you, I condone that. If I never say, hey, Bill, that's great. Let's hear from some others now because you, you know, we've heard a lot from you, but we haven't heard from Sue or, or Jen. Can we hear from them? If I never do that to Sue and Jen, it must mean I don't want to hear what they have to say. Mm-hmm. That'd be the furthest thing from my intention, but that's what it looks like. So now the environment's not safe. So now my decision-making process is now corrupted. And what we know about governance is that if it looks like a ruse, if it looks like the data in the room, the conversation in the room is not a place that invites spirited voices, you're now three and a half times more likely to have people in that room lie, cheat, or serve their own interests first. But if it looks like the data I'm bringing in is not corrupted, it's truly a full fact base. I haven't manipulated it to say what I wanted to say. If the voices in the room are welcome to, to debate and sort of have a great talk of war intellectually, now you're three and a half times more likely to have people tell the truth, behave fairly, give you their voice, and serve the purpose of the decision once it's made. I want to make sure that we're giving leaders out there not only the lens of the pitfalls to be aware of, but the tools in order to sidestep 
those pitfalls. So I don't want to leave people with the idea of, oh my gosh, you can't even open your mouth because chances are you're going to screw up or somebody's going to misinterpret one way or another. So I want everybody out there to recognize things like opening with your own vulnerability, uh, as Ron mentioned. And are there other another tool, for example, in finding the right balance of confidence and humility in situations? Because I think that is a challenge. You can't be too self-effacing in recognizing your own need shortcomings, missteps, et cetera, because then you don't want to undermine everybody else's confidence in you as a useless kind of doormat of sorts. So I think that part of the other thing to do in a group setting is ask folks to simply go around and say, you know, put it on a card so that nobody can see who it was. But what's the thing you find most undiscussable? Interesting. In our team. Okay. Right. Hand it in, have somebody else look at them and then try and find ways to say, okay, so what is this telling us about our team? That these are the things that we find undiscussable, we find difficult to bring up. Because rest assured, they may not be bringing it up in the room, but they're bringing it up outside the room, right? Every leader needs to understand you are the topic of conversation at the dinner table of those you lead every night. Oh, that's an interesting way to put it. You just have to decide what stories you want them to tell. (laughs) And if you don't know what stories they are telling, you should be worried. Here's a simple definition. If you don't have somebody coming into your office two or three times a week, telling you that something uncomfortable to hear just be very confident your leadership sucks, <laughs> period. Okay. And if what you concluded is no news is good news, things must be okay, then you're dangerous. Right. Right? You need a beaten path to your door. People not whining, not recreational whining or complaining. And it doesn't even have to be, be about you, but it could be about you. Hmm. But in problems, challenges, concerns, and not about other teammates. You don't want them coming to complain about their colleagues because then you have to send them, I don't want to hear it till you talk to them. Right. Right. right but about genuine performance challenges or their own concerns or their own shortfalls or something you're doing that's annoying, whatever it is, if you don't have a regular dose of information that makes you a little bit uncomfortable, that's not good. Because there's always problems just in the sense that there's people and there are going to be miscommunications and differences of opinion and differences of priorities. And well, priorities are always changing right. and people are not going to keep up. Right, right. Or are you forgetting about the five things you asked them to do last week and the two more you had under the plate this week and they have the capacity to do it, but they're afraid to tell you. Right. And do you find that there's a difference from the leadership role? Is there a difference in the challenges in finding all these balances that women and or minorities in that leadership role face in trying to communicate these changes and navigate these waters more more effectively compared to white male well, I think one thing we know about bias is that they're judged differently, which is which is cruel, right? Women are judged more harshly if they're assertive, they're confident when you know, when they get angry, they're given far less leniency. Minorities, same way, right? So if you're a person of color, you know, there's always that unconscious bias people are interpreting your words through. Mm-hmm. They don't even realize they're doing it. And you're watching their face and you know it's happening and you're having to sort of penetrate that filter and work twice as hard at it because you're not getting the help in return to hear you objectively. And so it's unfortunate. So are there things that they can do, that women can do, that minorities can do in that leadership role to try to find that balance and maintain that presence, that leadership presence, that authority without falling into or falling prey to some of those unfortunate stereotypes and biases? So I think it's different for each one, but I think for women, because women, I I find, are far more naturally excellent communicators than men. They're much more emotionally accessible. They're much more patient. And they, they're much more connectable. And those are incredible assets. So I often, whenever I coach executive women, I'm always marvel at how much they hide those things mm. to sort of fit into the boys club. So my goal for women is to liberate those gifts. You're naturally curious. You're naturally, more naturally empathic. 
And whether you believe it or not, those are fabulous gifts to convey a message, to compel and persuade, mm. to elicit hard information. And so, you know, for women, I want them to use the assets that they have in terms of their natural inclinations to connect, because usually they're very strong and often self-muted. People of color, you know, when I, I sorry, I have a couple of executives right now I'm coaching that are very senior level people of color. And one of the things they, they struggle with is, you know, when to know if the bias they're seeing is there or if they're just pretending it because they, they're so used to it. Mm. And so I often encourage them to be vulnerable and say, I have to tell you that sometimes I wonder if you're hearing my words through the color of my skin. Mm. And here's what would help me know that that wasn't happening. Can you give us an example? What is something that would help people know which one it was? How they respond to the decision, right? So do they go execute on it? Do they ask questions of your words? Do they engage you? Do they freely push back on you? And if they freely push back, would that be evidence of hearing what I say through the color of my skin? Or would that be evidence of just hearing? Oh, that would be evidence. They weren't hearing it through the color of the skin. If they're on eggshells, if they're, so I was thinking if there's a clear level of hesitance there, mm-hmm. that might be signaling either virtue signaling racial bias or, again, unconscious, or find out why they're not comfortable just speaking up. But I think, you know, not in the middle of a decision or a conversation, but aside from that, if there's a, a regular set of people or person from whom you sense that your skin color or your demographic representation is somehow inhibiting the relationship, talk about it. Mm. One of my favorite people in the world is Riaz Patel. He's a, an Emmy-nominated TV producer who's Muslim, Pakistani immigrant, and gay. And he flew... During the 2016 election, right, he knew he was only getting his own echo chamber. He flew to small town Alaska, and I've written this interview several times. It's also a story in my book. He flew to small town Alaska to catch a can to meet with people there who probably never had seen a Muslim, much less a gay Muslim. And he, he, he said to them, I have a fear that you look at me and see a terrorist. Am I wrong? Mm. And we just, and he had the most incredible conversations. And he heard about people in the fishing industry and, you know, why they were voting conservatively versus what he was. And he, he said, if I were them, I'd vote that way too. But he never understood their context before. So he went and heard and listened. I think all of us have to examine and deeply scrutinize our echo chambers and see who's in them, who's not in them, whose voices have we naturally excluded and whose voices have we included. And if we are including the voices of those who don't see the world the way we do, we're more likely to get rid of those biases or at least recognize them when they appear. So much is in there. So, okay, everybody remember to get more information within that wonderful book coming out very, very shortly to tell the truth. And one of the things that I, I'm wondering if how much you touched on in the book, given you know timing of writing and pandemic and all that kind of stuff, is the challenges of leadership and communication when the world has suddenly been thrown into the context in which we're engaging right now, which is virtual, right? All video, all the time, or at least, or even no video, just screen sharing and telephones, et cetera. But going from being able to meet in person, being able to travel, seeing people face to face, and now being virtual, how has that added another layer um, to the need? My gosh. And, you know, I wrote a couple of pieces in HBR. I wrote one called How to Answer the Unanswerable Question. And what is the unanswerable question? You know, when are we going back to work? Ah, yes. Or how much money is the PPE going to give us? When there really is a different question being asked. Anytime a leader gets asked a tough, accusative sounding, sharp, emotionally laden question, they feel obligated to answer it. Mm. The real question would be lurking two levels below it. Okay. And so you can still respond honestly without answering. How? So you can say, I sense that what's behind your question might be this, or I'm wondering if that's really the question you're wanting to know, or is it something else? Or I hear a lot of emotion in your question. Tell me what's behind that. Or I don't know the answer to that question. I don't think anybody does. 
But what I do know is this. Yeah. Yeah. So lots of ways, but so many leaders go immediately back on their heels into a corner and then feel obligated to look right, sound smart, and look like they have it all together with an answer that nobody's going to believe. I think that's the notion of being able to interpret what's behind a question is something that so many people forget to think about. And they hear a question and there's this compulsion to just answer the question on its surface. And this goes for relationships within your family, within your neighbors, not just in the org chart at work, but understanding like, why is this person concerned about it? What is the problem that they're actively facing that they're hoping that answer to your, their question will indirectly or directly for that matter, solve. Can you come up with another example of a... I think managing employees, giving feedback remotely, people who struggle to work remotely, whose time management skills, whose connection skills, whose teaming skills have been really disrupted because of virtual work. And how do you manage them? How do you give feedback to them? How do you stay connected to people? In, you know, Leader follower intimacy has been redefined. And so how do you build genuine connection, keep trust? create cohesion, create connectivity in this environment when you're looking at people's faces all day long. And what is a good example of how to do that? How do you use your one-on-one, right? Key rule is check in before you check on. And what does that mean, check in before you check on? How are you? How's it going? What's new? What's different with you? Versus how's the work going? Okay. And notice, note to people out there who are uh, less of the conversationalists per se and tend to get right into it, what he's suggesting, and tell me if I'm wrong, Ron, what I hear you suggesting as far as the check-in part, this is not small talk. This is not just some BS nonsense that's getting in the way where you have to be nicey-nicey, touchy-feely before you can get down to what actually matters and why you're on this call. You're not looking to just chit-chat for hours and waste time. There's an actual function to having this. I like to refer to it as connecting with the person talk or getting to know the person talk rather than quote-unquote small talk because the value is not small. Yes, because if you're inclined to dismiss non-content-driven conversations as that, then you really are putting yourself at risk because the relational glue you need to transmit across the technology to ensure that somebody is trusting you, loyal to your agenda, committed to their work, and wants to be a, be self-starting when there's no in-person direction, they need to know, again, the contributor and the contribution are fused now, Yes. right? So if you're looking at conversation about their life as small talk, you're seeing them as small and you will make them feel small. That's interesting. So say that one more time that last piece about if you're looking at it as small talk, because the context of the word small, I want to really drive into people's brains. I think that's a great framing and comparison. You know, unimportant, superfluous, unnecessary, a means to an end. It's not just your hallway into the conversation. If you look as conversation that's relational, connective, dignifying, and honoring of somebody's life, I mean, listen, if you ever thought that somebody's personal life was not relevant to you anymore, that's gone. Their personal life is relevant to you. You're in their living room. You're seeing their dirty laundry. You're seeing their kids do their homework. Literally. You are yeah. in their homes. Their personal life is relevant to you now. And it's not saying that you need to pry and that you need to be a busybody and dig into all sorts of no. skeletons and of personal so. drama. But to the extent that something in the moment is actually on their mind, is distracting them, is a concern of theirs, that's what we're looking for. Yes? Well, and, and just how are you? I noticed I got an email from you at 11 o'clock last night. Were you really on email that late? Mm. Are you tired? How can I be helpful to you? Really critical question to ask. You will make somebody feel small if you view talking about their life as small talk. 
So that's the key right there. You will make someone feel small if you value talking about their life as small talk. So I really want to drive that point home. I think that's terrific. Now, let's talk about your business. And as you've built Navalentin, you've got your other partners and, and various coworkers, and of course, millions of, or at least thousands upon thousands of clients over the years, depending on how you want to uh, count those numbers. What's an example of a communication-related mistake that you've made somewhere in the business development history of, of that, which is Ron Carucci? And if you could have a do-over, what would it sound like? Like today. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, there's been so many faux pas. Well, I, I, misread, I misread the room. I speak fast. I'm from New York. Didn't get the Sounds audience. normal to me. I'm a Jersey girl. We're all good. Right. So, yeah, so this, I, I can give you dozens. I mean, there was one. I was working in the Middle East. Mm. and we were straddling the Israeli-Palestinian audiences. Mm. And I didn't do, and this was a long time ago, I didn't do the right training and didn't have the right cultural context. And I said the word Israel in a Palestinian audience. Mm. Just said the word. And yeah. I watched the room shut down. Wow. I had no idea what was happening. But this was a, a three-hour workshop. And we had to go all three hours with you know, people struggling to engage. whatever. And I had no idea. I mean, I knew something had happened and I knew I'd done it but I had no idea what. So to everybody else out there who's not putting the pieces together, what's the problem inherent in, in what just happened? Why can't you say the word Israel in a mix? That's not, the, that's not a country they acknowledge. And so I should have said a different word or, or referred to the region as a different, in a different way. What would have been a different way to, to refer to it? Palestine <laughs> or oh, okay. in, the, in the Middle East or in the region. Got it. Um, I, it was inadvertent. I, wasn't, it was, I had no idea. I, because the assumption was I now had, I had a political agenda. Got it. I didn't at all. Sure. And this is, you know, this is quite a while ago. I mean, today you wouldn't even have the opportunity to do that now. So, you know, I've just made all kinds of references, you know, even just the little things like the ableist references. Well, that's the blind leading the blind, you know, and all the ways you just don't know you should be insensitive Mm -hmm. to people. You know, now, I mean, I know that many folks feel like it's just overly squishy and woke and snowflakey to be sensitive. But I actually think that if you want an inclusive workplace, you can have it both ways. You can't have idioms that are really offensive to some people and think it's okay and have an inclusive workplace. So, you know, do we all need to have thick skin sometimes? Absolutely. But there are certain populations for which we've asked to only have thick skin for decades. Sure. And so I think we need to rebalance that mix. And so I think we all have places where we're insensitive and not thoughtful. And again, it doesn't matter if it was intended or not. If somebody ended up being hurt or offended or put off by something you did or said, that's the result you did. Yeah. There's no sort of rewind tape. I didn't mean it. That's not what I, I'm so sorry. You can't defend yourself. You can't say that's not what I meant. That's not, you know, and again, major leadership faux pas, right? Defending yourself when someone says you hurt them. Right. Why? What's the point? Who cares what you meant, right? Your only focus should be at that moment, make it right and say you're sorry. Leaders so underestimate the power of an apology. Yeah. I thought, I'm sorry, but, right. you know, if you had, I was tired and you should have been, yeah, and I said it four times, you didn't hear me, but, but I'm sorry. Yeah. Then you're making it worse. Our pride just hijacks our mind at the wrong moments when the only answer is, God, I'm so sorry. What was I thinking? Thank you for telling me. Sure. And at that point, if when the apology is heard and the recognition of the harm done is acknowledged, then you can flip it around perhaps and say, please understand that's never what I meant. I never meant to hurt you that way. And then your intent can be better received Absolutely. once the acknowledgement of the impact has been. And then don't go watch you do what you did me. <laughs> we don't need to hear that because you unwind the whole thing. Just stop. Right. Okay. So 
with regard to that kind of influence, I'm going to transition here into our listener 24-hour influence challenge. So given everything we've discussed today, Ron, please speak directly to our listeners. And I'd like to invite you to challenge them to take one step that they can complete within 24 hours to have more influence. How would you like to challenge our listeners today? I would like you to call a meeting of your team. I'd like you to take your company's mission statement or your values or some statement of identity that your company purports to be. Here's our purpose in the world. Here's our values. And I'd like you to pass it out among your team. And I'd like you to ask this question. When are we at our best living up to these words? Mm. Where do we fall short? What do we do in our team? What do I do as your leader that belies these words? And how can we more consistently live up to these words? Do we even believe them? Because whether you mean to or not, there is a gap between the actions and words of what your company promises and what your team actually experiences. You're now three times more likely that they're not going to tell you the truth. Because what you've done is institutionalized duplicity. What you've said to people is it's okay if we say one thing to another. Mm. So start with the promises your company has made to itself and to others about who you intend to be. And start with your people and ask, are we being this? Are we who we say we are? Okay, so this is a big one, guys, out there. So what you need to do at at the very least in the next 24 hours from here is to set that meeting, get it on the calendar, send the information, send the agenda, and then you can have that conversation because, you know, I don't know about you, but I certainly find that trying to get a group of people in one room or in one call on the calendar may take a little bit longer than that, but you can certainly, or at least before the meeting can take place, maybe more than 24 hours from now, but you can get the calendar set today. So get this on it. Do not put it off because this is a conversation you and your people need to have. And then lastly, Ron, some advice, please, for future generations. If you were asked to give the commencement address at a high school graduation ceremony, what advice would you give the graduates as future leaders? Whether or not they go to college, regardless of their major or career goals, what's one thing they have to do to be successful? You probably have heard for a long time the message of be true to yourself. I want you to be true about yourself. You can't be true to yourself until you know the truth, how others see you, experience you. Don't be afraid of feedback. Find out how others know you. Who do they identify you as? Ask questions. Find out and learn how to keep your intention and your impact closely connected. Because if you're not true about yourself, you're going to be true to some image of yourself. And it'll be a ruse. Don't become the best performance of yourself. Become the best version of yourself. I love it. Ron, thank you so much for joining us today. How can people learn more about you, Navalent, and your book? Come visit us. So at Navalent, N-A-V-A-L-A-N-T.com, we've got great- I will put that in the show notes. So that was pretty quick. Great. Go ahead. You'll find all kinds of videos and books and eBooks, free downloads, all kinds of articles. Our book has a new website, tobehonest.net, where you'll find a great team assessment. So if you want to follow up on that exercise I just gave you, we have a great, how honest is my team? Hmm. And you can all figure out who's telling the truth to who at tobehonest.net slash assessment. Also, please follow me on LinkedIn and on Twitter and stay in touch. We'll put all of Ron's links in the show notes. So please go check them out and then reach out to him, connect with him and let him know that you heard him here on the Speaking to Influence podcast. Once again, Ron, thank you so much for joining us today. And we're so excited to help you launch this new book. Laura, a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Everybody else out there, thank you, as always, for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to give us a five-star rating on iTunes so we can help even more people increase their confidence, presence, and influence. And finally, new download. If you want to download my free guide to equipment recommendations for virtual influence, including my picks for headphones, microphones, lights, and more, go to speakingtoinfluence.com. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, and you're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. 
Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Laura Sacola, and I want to sincerely thank you for listening to the Speaking to Influence podcast. If you love listening to these episodes as much as I love bringing them to you, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please go to iTunes right now to rate and review our podcast in order to help us expand our reach so even more people can master the three C's to command the room, connect with the audience, and close the deal. Thanks for listening to Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite, the show for readers who want to speak with impact. The hosts, producers, owners, and media distributors of the show make no guarantees that the strategies and information discussed will result in profit or other success and may result in losses. The opinions and statements of the hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the owners, staff, managers, broadcasters, or sponsors of the show. No medical or psychological therapy or personal or professional wellness or relationship advice is offered in the show. You are advised to seek counsel on matters related to your health, family, relationships, job, or other business and legal matters from licensed advisors in those areas prior to making any changes in business or lifestyle. No information provided may be suitable in your situation. As always, take responsibility for the decisions and actions you take, including the reactions they may make in your work, family, health, and life.